0: Good Chemistry Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sean B. Carroll. Sean is an award-winning evolutionary biologist, writer, educator, and film producer. He is currently Vice President for Science Education at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, where he's also head of the Tangled Bank Film Studios. Sean is also chair of the Biology Department at the University of Maryland as he has an active research lab and the author of several popular science books. Among his many, many awards and honors, Sean is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and his documentary films have earned two Emmys. His new book, which was just published in late 2020, is A Series of Fortunate Events, Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life, and You. Sean and I talked about all all kinds of stuff. And we touched on everything from his remarkable career to his writing process. We talked about dinosaurs and snake venom, and we even talked about COVID-19, the evolution of viruses, and how some of the new coronavirus vaccines actually work. If you find the content in this episode helpful or interesting, please do consider liking, sharing, or subscribing. And with that, here is my conversation with Dr. Sean B. Carroll. Sean Carroll, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's been uh, a long time for for the listeners who don't know, which is probably everyone. uh, You're actually my scientific grandfather, I guess. I got my start in science in your lab.
1: I remember when you first came in. Uh, you were one of perhaps the only incoming freshman I ever experienced who had read, and you'd have to tell me how many of my books you had already read, and I thought, my God, I can't get my graduate students to read these books here's <laughs> here's Here's somebody who hasn't even taken his first freshman class and he's ready to rock and
0: roll yeah it was um it was your first book, and um, we can we can get to that. I definitely want to talk about that book, but you're really interesting because you're a biologist, but you're not just a biologist. You do a number of things. And so how about if you meet someone at a cocktail party, they have no idea who you are, and they say, so Sean, what do you do for a living? What's the first thing that you say?
1: Oh, I tell them I'm a biologist. I think the science identity is is foremost. It's kind of everything revolves from that. And I've been really fortunate in the course of my career to have periods where I focused exclusively on what I'll say is Discovery science. When you were in my lab, um, uh, I was able to branch into writing, sort of, at the, somewhat at the same time, um, and then more recently into filmmaking or being part of a, a whole filmmaking enterprise, uh, and then areas of philanthropy and all this other sort of stuff. Maybe we can get into, but it all started with a scientific lens, a scientific perspective, and both the desire and the opportunity to share that process, the, the substance of those discoveries or the journey of those discoveries, and sort of the scientific worldview with all sorts of audiences. And I, I really enjoy it. And it's just sort of diversified into lots of different media, whether that's um, doing you know, stand-up talks and live audiences or books or films.
0: Mm-hmm. So as a biologist, what, what do you study? And are, are you still running a lab right now?
1: Yeah, so I have a lab at the University of Maryland. Um, so for the last yeah, good amount of time, it's been exclusively focused on evolutionary questions. And the big question my lab is interested in is where do new things come from, um, and that's also something you bit off in your undergraduate work. So the focus of study has changed because you know model you, you attack different models, use different models that you think might give you insights into certain questions. And so in the early days, I was really looking at new physical patterns. Uh, For example, body parts and body patterns. Where did new things come from there? More recently, wanting to know where new, for example, biochemical functions come from, and particularly using snake venom as a model. Hmm. So venoms have evolved many times in the animal kingdom. Fundamental question is, well, where the heck did all this stuff come from? And you know, to what degree is this all new stuff or old stuff that's been repurposed? Mm-hmm. And fortunately, we're living in a time where those kinds of questions, we can get down to the brass tacks
0: of, of
1: how things work.
0: So when you study evolution, let's just take the venom example. How the hell do you even study something like that? What do you guys do?
1: <laughs> well, you start with with the stuff you're interested in, so and let's take rattlesnakes we chose rattlesnakes because we knew we were going to be have, have access to material and there had been a recent fair, fair amount of study of them and you know venom is this cocktail of proteins that the snake injects into its prey or accidental human victim, and these things do a bunch of stuff that um, essentially take the prey down either. Uh, kill it quickly, or at least uh, disable it so that it can be can consumed. And, the, it, and it, because it's a cocktail of stuff, you'd ask, well, how did it get all this stuff? It couldn't possibly get all this stuff overnight. So it somehow it has been assembled over time. So how do you figure out how this was assembled? And where did it come from? And when you say, where did it come from? Proteins are encoded in DNA. And so that means DNA is really the crucial record of invention. And what you want to do is study animals that have and make venoms like rattlesnakes and compare them to things that don't have those things and say, all right, here's a certain toxin gene. Where the heck might it have come from? And you get clues from, for example, the if you, if you sort of parachute into the DNA where that toxin gene is and you look around, you might find adjacent genes that are present in all sorts of non-toxic animals. And that starts to give you a clue of where that gene came from. And then you look at that gene in detail and say, well, does that look like an old gene that's just being used in a new way or has the gene been modified in some ways to maybe, you know, sort of weaponize it? And so these are the kinds of questions that we're asking. So it's, it's a comparative approach and then it's, it's a deep dive into sort of the DNA record of evolution to say, where did this arsenal of toxins come from?
2: Hmm.
0: Well, so in the case of rattlesnake venom, what are these proteins? Do they, do they look like other proteins that do something more basic.
1: Absolutely. And they come from essentially household, you know, housekeeping proteins that hmm. all of us have uh, very familiar stuff from a lot of four-legged animals and, and, and fish have. So for example, in rattlesnakes, two big classes of toxins, they have these toxins that are uh, certain rattlesnakes have toxins that are neurotoxic and they can drop you pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Respiratory arrest. Um, and, those came from a class of enzymes called phospholipase A2s. And they've been modified a bit, but um, nonetheless, they're totally recognizable as members of that family. And there's another group of proteins. These are enzymes called metalloproteinases. It just means they chew up protein and they, they use a um, calcium or zinc as a, um, uh, in, in doing that. And we have tons of them. Uh, Lots of animals have tons of them. And just one of those was co-opted and modified a long time ago in this lineage that gave rise to rattlesnakes and their close relatives, the vipers, and some of their more distant relatives. And the snakes have just gone crazy with this. So one gene that you can see in all sorts of four-legged animals has been expanded to a battery of 30 genes in the Western diamondback rattlesnake. Bam, 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 bam. Right along the chromosome, you see it. And that that arsenal, that battery of toxin genes is telling you something. that Something has been specifically expanded in this lineage that is obviously important to the way it lives. So those are the kind of forensic clues that we can discover in DNA that tell us where the toxin genes came from and how they've been modified. Now, we didn't know any of this six or eight years ago, because. Mm-hmm. We were the first to look in the genomes and 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 ferret some of this out, but um, but nonetheless, we've been surprised lots of times. Um, it, first of all, it's gratifying to be able to trace the origin of things. That's not something that evolutionary biologists have been able to do uh, until fairly recently. But also, the snakes just—they do some weird things. <laughs> They've got there are snakes that. There are populations of, uh, for example, rattlesnakes in the Southwest where some individuals are neurotoxic and some individuals are hemorrhagic, and there's really surprising levels of genetic variation between individuals. Um, we know that ancestors of most rattlesnakes were neurotoxic, but bunch of species are not. And you think, well, once you invented a neurotoxin, why would you ever get rid of it? But that's mm-hmm. clearly what they've done. So, as has always happened throughout my career, you know you you get surprised because it turns out the real story is opposite or upside down to what you expected that you would think when you invented a potent toxin, you'd never get rid of it. You'd think that if it was a really potent toxin, every member of the population would have it. Um, it's not the case. So we're enjoying kind of the natural history of these snakes at the same time, understanding these kind of um, general evolutionary questions that we're trying to pursue to the, to a real satisfactory resolution.
0: Where, um, where do you get, the raw material
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so we have collaborators in texas uh, a woman named elda sanchez runs a big center there that houses all these snakes and it's a federally funded center that um houses all sorts of poisonous snakes And, and they've hosted my lab group uh multiple times we also get stuff you know through fedex um I can tell you that when I moved my lab from the University of Wisconsin to the University of Maryland, my Maryland hosts were quite happy to hear that I was not bringing tons of rattlesnakes that they would have to house. Because you can imagine on a college campus that bad things could happen if you had a uh, a basement full of rattlesnakes somewhere. So on the material, is, it's pretty straightforward to get. A little bit of venom goes a long way. A little bit of, of blood for DNA goes a long way. So um, yeah, and and now some of those tissues we can culture so we don't actually need to take things from, from living snakes. So uh, it's sort of becoming a little, you know, it's not quite fruit flies in terms of mm-hmm. ease of uh, certainly not ease of, of housing or anything like that, but in terms of experiments and, and the kind of studies we do, it's, it's, it's opened up. You know, I should also mention, you know, people may care at all about snake venoms, although they're a pretty interesting model, but, you know, think of parallels, for example, the invention of milk mm-hmm. in, mammals, or the invention of antifreeze in certain animals. um, These are comparable stories of, well, where did new things come from that sort of open up lifestyles? So that's the general question that we're trying to understand is, you know, how do things get invented that then sort of blast open new ways of living? And rattlesnakes themselves have radiated uh, fairly recently into a really good number of species and their close relatives, which are called crotalids, across the new world. So, Uh, There's been a lot of action in snake evolution in the last, say, 12 or 15 million years.
0: Mm -hmm. So rattlesnakes are interesting. You also mentioned fruit flies, which was (laughs) the animal that, that I worked with and that you worked on for most of your career. One of the things I learned early on in your lab and elsewhere was to say you know, we didn't study fruit flies. We studied something deeper and bigger and the animals were just a tool. So what were those bigger sets of questions that you were were using them for?
1: Yeah, great question. I think just a really important question when talking about science. Look, I think the art of this business is you try to find the simplest example of the phenomenon you want to understand. If you try to find the most complicated example, let's take something that I've never worked on, like the brain, but you Mm -hmm. have. And you start with, you know, an elephant brain or a human brain, you're dealing, you know, it, it's complicated and it's hard to do experiments. So you'd you move to something simpler. Well, in the case of the fruit fly, this tiny little animal, really in the building of that animal and its wings and its eyes and its legs and everything else, it's, it's, a, it's really just a microscopic example of anything that any other animal has to do. Um, but they're very easy to keep. They, they reproduce rapidly. And because they've been sort of the workhorse for genetics for a century, there's just tons of tools that biologists have come up with over the decades. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I didn't say to my parents, oh, I want to be a fruit fly biologist you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. What happens is you find models of what you want to understand. And the fruit fly turned out to be a great model for animal development. So how are complex things built?
0: Well, and what? then a great, go ahead. Why is that? How can a how can a fruit fly teach us something about other animals?
1: Well, it's it's now an answer I can give more in hindsight because the honest the honest truth was in 1982 when I was deciding to go after my PhD and go study fruit flies. I had a few of my mentors say, (laughs) you know, you're stepping off the edge of the earth because there was a bias in the biology community at the time that if you wanted, you you know, that you had to study something relevant to humans. And that would mean studying animals with fur, like mice. And there was no expectation that something like a fruit fly, which is, you know, an arthropod, an invertebrate, would be a model of anything for humans. But, just, but, but there was so much fascinating stuff going on in fruit flies. So the, the phenomenon that launched a 1,000 postdocs was the discovery of these mutations called homeotic mutations and they are mutations in single genes that transform one body part into the likeness of another. So, antennapedia for example transforms the antenna to leg, or a mutation called bithorax transforms the hind wings to the forewings, so you get a fly with two sets of wings instead of one. And
0: wait, wait, wait. The fact so, that- so you you mean literally a, a mutation in a gene will turn the antenna of a fly into another body part?
1: Yeah, into a leg, to a nicely formed leg. Hmm. And you think, man, I got to understand how that works. So when I first read about these mutations, 1981 or 1982, I was studying something completely different. I was getting my PhD in immunology. And I thought, what could those mutations be? What could those genes be? There are a single mutation could so transform the body of an animal. And they seem to have some sort of evolutionary significance because you sort of think if a gene can really sculpt a body part like that, well, what makes a lot of animals, the different, interesting difference between a lot of animals are the number and kinds of body parts they have. Mm-hmm. So I was hell bent that I was going to study genes like this. And it was not really on the radar of many people at the time. And I approached a really young guy. In fact, somebody, uh, Matt Scott, who was just opening his lab. He hadn't even opened his lab yet. And I said, hey, I want to work on on these genes. And he said, okay, but um, you know, first day in the lab was cleaning out the glassware of the lab, the previous lab that had left it all messy and, and dirty. You know, we, we, uh, we really started from, from the ground together. Um, But it was a good call. You know, again, wisdom was, was, you know, the wisdom I was getting was this was a really dangerous and risky maneuver, Hmm. but I was driven by the biological interest. I just thought these mutations were so fascinating. The genes must be interesting. There wasn't There weren't a lot of tools for getting at genes in those days or or for figuring out how they might work inside an animal. So even when I wrote for a postdoc fellowship, there was a lot of skepticism of whether or not this was even technically feasible to figure out how these genes worked. So you have to kind of sometimes you have to swim against the current and say, look, this thing is so compelling, so interesting. I got to know. I got to work on it. And fortunately, you know, I stuck to my guns and then I got lucky. Uh, and I, I was in a great environment as a postdoc. It was really fertile. It was really, really creative things. A lot of things happen in a short period of time. And, and to get back to your original question, why would a fruit fly be informative or interesting right at that time? In fact, Matt Scott was a co-discoverer of the fact that in these fruit fly genes, um, there was a little stretch of DNA that turned out to be exist in genes in earthworms and butterflies and mice and humans. And it turns out that those same bodybuilding and body patterning genes that sculpt the fruit fly exist and sculpt us. Hmm. And that was discovered in the 1980s and it blew everyone's mind. I don't know of anyone who claimed that they saw that coming, but that was the sort of the revolutionary discovery that said, Oh my gosh, not only are these fruit flies interesting. I mean, they're a passport to the whole animal kingdom. Which meant, yeah, if you wanted to study how to build a, you know, a mammal, they were a great thing to know about. But if you wanted to understand how did the diversity of the animal kingdom evolve? Well, we were staring at the right genes to ask that question. And that was really my driving passion was the di- diversification of the animal kingdom. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, who knows what, what lessons there are in there except for, you know, <laughs> We often make discoveries that nobody foresees and, they, and they're sort of game changers in terms of people's perspectives. And also individually, if you're really driven to ask a certain question, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'd be the last person to tell anybody, you know, not to do it because you, you got to do it. You got to do what makes sense to you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that I, that I went after it.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. There's almost a parallel I can see between the role that you know chance and adjacent opportunities play in the natural world and also in <laughs> in your professional world, so yeah. you you were doing immunology, you weren't doing evolutionary biology, you were driven by curiosity, and things just sort of popped up by chance and and you sort of seized on them, just like you know when you describe the snakes or the other discoveries that I know you 've made there's all these. There's all of these adjacent possibilities in evolution, and you just sort of tinker what's there and, and it opens up this whole new world. Do you yeah. can you maybe talk about that in the context of your first book, which is really about this whole field of how you build animal bodies?
1: Well, let me so let me take that because the question is kind of two-parted, which is there's sort of like the culture of science. Mm-hmm. And you know, how does a scientist get lucky? <laughs> I guess is part of it. And the second thing is. What's the parallel conceptually sort of in actually how evolution works? So let me just go to the scientist side of it, the human side of that first. Um, I was going to school, graduate school in Boston, as you did. And uh, I always looked around at the seminar postings of the other schools and I would just hop on the T and go hear seminars that interested me. Um, Nobody told me not to do that, Mm -hmm. but I did that. And because of that, I just, and I only went to things that I thought would be interesting, right? So I used that as kind of an R&D tool, right, of what else was going on in biology at the time. So I was lucky to be in Boston, which was such a fertile place for, you know, almost every flavor of biology was going to come through Boston in a year, right? And anything new and different was going to come through Boston because of the schools that were there. So there's, there's one chalk up, which is, you know, sort of being in the right place matters. And then, as we just described I, I got interested in this stuff and I pursued it. But I can tell you that about seven or eight years later, so I knew that I wanted to study evolution. But for a bunch of years, I focused entirely on the fruit fly because what interested me was the evolution of body form, the number and kind of body parts, their patterning, et cetera. And it was important to get to that. I I understood and others understood that changes in pattern, changes in form must be due to changes in development because form is made by development. This Mm -hmm. process by which an embryo grows up from a single cell and and, uh, into a complete creature. So it must be changes in that process that give you creatures that look different. So we have to understand that process in order to understand changes in that process. And I was thinking, okay, I I had to go hard on fruit flies to try to find out as many secrets of the fruit, you know, through the fruit flies I could, but how was I gonna study evolution? And one day I was giving a seminar at Duke and uh, I was scheduled the way academic seminars work. I was scheduled to meet with a variety of people. And one person named Fred Nyhout almost didn't make his appointment with me because he had a pipe break in his house. But then we met and Fred works on Butterflies. And he said, Sean, all this stuff you're, you're discovering in fruit flies, do you think it could sort of explain this? And he shows, you know, sort of a, a case full of butterfly, spectacular butterfly wing patterns. And I said, well, I don't know, Fred, but its sh- I sure as hell would like to find out. And that's how I got started working on butterflies. Wow. So that was a case of, I meet, you know, one of the few guys I think in the United States I could have bumped up to, but Fred was a huge expert on butterflies, sweet guy, helped us get started. And that led to asking questions about, okay, where do new things come from? And so we started a, a program where I was, I was comparing, different. we were comparing different kinds of animals and asking, well, if this animal over here has, One set of wings and this animal has two sets of wings. What's different between them? Or if this thing has more walking legs and this has fewer walking legs, what are the differences between them? And then new things. So one of the things that's prominent on some butterflies is they have these eye spots, these beautiful concentric rings of pigmentation that look like eyes, look like false eyes on the wings. And Fred had studied those and and he was studying a species that had them. And we brought those into the lab and the hunch we played was, well, gee, We were studying the building of wings in a fruit fly, and we thought, okay, same genes are going to build wings in in butterflies because wings have been around for 300 million years. They're going to use the same stuff. But what about the patterning of those wings? I wonder if they're doing anything new. So we just cloned out all these genes, and then we said, well, what are they doing in butterflies? And most of the genes were boring. They were doing exactly in butterflies what they were doing in fruit flies, marking out various territories, et cetera. But then one gene absolutely beautifully foreshadowed the formation of the eye spots. And that is one of those those rare, holy shit, stop the presses moments in the lab where you have no idea. I mean, I had no anticipation of what that result would even look, that we'd get a result like that or even what it would look like until Mm -hmm. somebody called me over one morning and said, Sean, this is what I see. And you know, I mean, it is. It makes your heart race. It makes your mind race because you're like, oh my God, what? I know this is something. I know this is something. What could it be? And it turns out, we wrote this up in the first half of 1994. But it it turned out it was probably the pioneering discovery that really kind of was the general would teach us essentially the generality of how new. Physical traits evolve. Mm -hmm. And this was an old, very old gene, a gene that had been around for more than 500 million years, being used in a new way in those butterfly wings. And that, in a nutshell, was how body patterns were going to evolve. Mm -hmm. And as we studied more things over the next 15 or 20 years, that theme just kept, and as labs across the world study things, that theme just kept coming back and back. very Mm -hmm. old genes sort of learn new tricks in certain species and gave us new patterns. And that was really the root of, of morphological diversity. And, uh, you know, never knew that we were going to get that first clue in such a visual, surprising crystalline way, you know, one morning in the lab, but, Mm -hmm. um, and when it happens, it's, you know, it's, it's as thrilling as I think, you know, anything that could happen to a, you know, a race car driver or a musician, I think it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's gotta, I hope it's on par with that.
0: Well, one thing, the thing that really blew me away when I was a teenager, when I was like 18, and I read your first book, Endless Forms, which is sort of about this whole field, was I said, holy cow, sort of life makes sense now. There's not this inexplicable gap between humans and bugs and other critters. It's all the same genetic ingredients, and you just sort of recombine them and mix and match them in different ways essentially. And yeah. that can generate the actual, diver- the astounding diversity that you see. Yeah.
1: That's an interesting takeaway you got. So yeah, the book, uh, Endless Forms is Most Beautiful, it, it's a, it, it borrows from Darwin's last line of the origin of species. And I was talking about form. I was talking about, well, how does all this int- incredible diversity of form of the animal kingdom evolve? And by that time, the book was published in 2005. We now knew we could say that basically, there was a common genetic toolkit um, these bodybuilding and body patterning genes shared by so many animals. And really what made them different was the way they were used, not whether they existed or not, but but the ways that they were used. And you're right. That closes a lot of the gaps between everything in, in the animal world to see that we are, we're just a little remodeled, you know, <laughs> four-legged animal, right? It's it, once you see how to build a mouse, building a human doesn't look that complicated either. Building a fruit fly doesn't look that complicated either. So, um, yeah, that, those genes gave us really a passport to the making of the entire kingdom, and, and really a logic, which was, you know, and we were, and si- simultaneous discovery people were starting to sequence the genomes of all sorts of species. And there was an expectation, for example, that humans would have more genes than anything because right, right? we're so right. complex. And I remember being at meetings and taking bets because I was like, <laughs> no way, man. You know, people are like, oh, it's going to be 100,000 genes in us because there's only you know, 20,000 genes in a mouse or 15,000 genes in a fruit fly. This would be late 90s. Late 90s. Late 90s. Late 90s. Just So a human genome comes out yep. and the number may have been up in the high 20s, but that's come down and come down since then. And it's like, yeah. It, you don't need any more genes to make a human than you do to make a fruit fly or a butterfly, you know, or a snake. It's you just use them in different ways, and and really the the, the double sort of whammy of that, which interested a lot of people, um, surprised biologists, but then interested non-biologists because they were like, you know, goodness, I mean we're really, you know, genetically, you know, not only not that different, but not that much of a mystery. Um, just another, just another, you know, four-legged animal in the animal kingdom. Um, but the, it was those kinds of discoveries that people started asking me, you know, to be in documentary films or for interviews with the press, or to give public lectures to explain the discoveries mm-hmm. and what they meant. And after doing that for a while, that's what led me to write the book. I thought, well, goodness, I, I could either give this talk, you know, up oh. times, yeah, 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 or I could put all these thoughts in some organized way down on paper. And then when the filmmakers came along, I thought, well, you know, film goes even farther because a lot more people will watch a film, you know, Mm -hmm. an episode of Nova or something like that, than we'll read a book. And so, you know, let's do films. And that's what really catalyzed the whole science communication side was that fortunately, I was in a field and directly involved in a lot of cool discoveries and directly involved in communicating those discoveries. And it just grew from there.
0: Interesting. So there, there was never a plan. It wasn't premeditated that, okay, I'm going to become a scientist, and run a lab, and now I'm going to start writing books. It just sort of spilled over from your curiosity and people asked you to talk about it. And then you just sort of formalized what organically yeah. happened.
1: Yeah. And I think it was even somewhat connected to my teaching because I, I always enjoyed classroom teaching. I lo- I liked the challenge of trying to communicate you know, discoveries and ideas and thoughts to, you know, first timers, right, to mm-hmm. students. And that, that hones a certain, well, you know, whether it's skills or not, uh, you know, I, I did my best, <laughs> that's all I can say. But that at least that challenge is interesting. How do you communicate kind of what's up in your head or what the scientific community has found out and how How do you communicate that with people in a way that's accessible? I love that challenge, still love it to this day. And um, that's what all was sort of, that was the confluence of things that were sort of going on at that time, but where the research was incredibly exciting. New discoveries were happening at a pretty interesting pace in the lab or in my colleagues' labs around the world. And I was interested in this challenge of how do you communicate this? And no, it was no plan, I, the, the the original plan. So in 1982, 83, I said, I wanna study the making of the animal kingdom. I wanna study, you know, how you get snakes and butterflies and giraffes, okay? That was probably the real root motive. And I followed what I think was a fairly rigorous scientific path of what made sense, find out how some animal does it and then take that information to studying other animals. But um, the public side of it, you know, there was, yeah. No, there was no anticipation of that. How, how could there be, you know, mm-hmm. you don't, you're, you're lucky in this business to make any discovery, let alone a discovery that somebody finds interesting. <laughs> and, um, uh, but as I said, I enjoyed the challenge and I certainly must've enjoyed the feedback that I got. I think a really important audience um, simultaneous with this, Nick, was 2005, if my memory serves, was the year of the Dover trial on intelligent design. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty oh, yeah. sure. I forgot about so that. So here... It's, to me, a golden era in evolutionary science. We've got access to the DNA record. The discoveries are just cascading out of labs, okay? And we've got this 19th century debate going on of whether or (laughs) not evolution is, you know, is real. And so, one of the most important audiences I met in this whole time period were biology teachers in large numbers. Like, I got invited to conventions, and I tell you, they're the most inspiring group of people to be around. This is essentially the, you know, this is, this is the frontline army for, for biologists and for the future of, of biology and science. These were the people who were taking this to, you know, large numbers of students year in and year out who spent, you know, day after day in classrooms with kids trying to get these ideas across. And I thought, wow, first of all, what have we discovered sort of new that can help them with that? either make it more engaging or more sticky. And, and how do we do that? And so uh, that had catalytic effects on some of the other decisions I I made after that time. But um, I saw new ways to teach evolution because we really could go right down to Mm -hmm. the specific changes in DNA that changed traits for decades, you know, evolution was sort of described in the abstract sense of oh you know genes must be changing for for things to be changing now we could show you which genes mattered which changes and which genes mattered most and exactly how they added up to making differences and that was game set match in terms of evolutionary process and you know for evolution deniers it was game set match right it, mm-hmm. there was you know there was there was uh, no more sort of uh, you know gap or uncertainty to try to point to
0: yeah. The, um, the subject of not just the denial of evolution by certain people, but the denial of si- different scientific findings has fascinated me. And it's a really important subject at a societal level, I think. One thing that I found that I still find interesting about it is it's not just one group of people in society that denies science. It's different groups of people denying different forms of science for different yeah. reasons. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about what you think the underlying psychology is around why people sometimes meet with science in a combative way
1: yeah well let me start so there's a piece if you don't mind me telling you so there a recent piece i wrote on this which would be a more uh organized and thoughtful <laughs> um digest than what i can uh you know verbalize today it's called uh, denial the denialist playbook and it's uh online in scientific american and i sort of try to unpack denialism and let me go right to sort of the bottom line. What, and I'm not talking about like doubt or so, look, you know, skepticism plays a big part in science. Let's, let's mm-hmm. define denialism. Denialism mm-hmm. is really uh, disregarding consensus facts from the scientific community. Okay. So, and, and at the root of that, which, it, and, and, and denialism and the tactics of denialists are really sort of a rhetorical fog. Mm -hmm. They're throwing up all sorts of sort of objections and what ifs and yeah, buts and all this kind of stuff. These are just, this is just a smokescreen for the fact that there is some fundamental philosophical disagreement that they can't surmount. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a young earth creationist, Mm -hmm. well, evolution is irreconcilable with their worldview. You know, the world is... You know, the earth is over four and a half billion years old. All of life evolved naturally with no divine intervention. That's mm-hmm. a different worldview than a young earth creationist hands. So their only tactics they have left is just to say what the scientists are wrong. They've, they've misinterpreted all of their data <laughs> or the scientists are malicious and they are, you know, uh, uh you know, militant atheists trying to undermine the American way of life. Okay. Mm. You know, they're or we're dangerous for even saying these sorts of things, or we would, you know, we're taking away their religious freedom. So there's this whole set of rhetorical arguments that uh, are thrown up to try to sort of raise doubt in, in, in some or in other, in, in their community's mind. So that's part of the psychology. The psychology is what happens when you confront facts Consensus facts that are incompatible with a worldview. Yeah. Another example for ex- which comes from a totally different world, but it's in the article. And this is where I, this was for me a formative experience in terms of learning about denialism. Was it has to do with the story of the polio vaccine in hmm. the mid 1950s and chiropractors' response to it. And it turns out that that not everyone, but most chiropractors were opposed to polio vaccination. I thought, oh, wait, wait a second, I'd grown up with this story as like one of the medicine's greatest triumphs, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to thwart this scourge that paralyzed people and, and killed kids. And in, in 1955, it was second only to the atomic bomb in terms of what Americans feared most. Oh, wow. So polio, you know, as scary as coronavirus, right? At least for sane people. And... But chiropractors opposed it. And you're like, well, how do they oppose it? It was a large-scale clinical trial. It showed that it prevented the disease. And yeah, why People chiropractors? Lined up. Well, simply put, well, chiropractic was invented in the early 20th century. And the theory of chiropractic was that all disease originated in the spine. Hmm. And that manipulation of the spine was necessary to, to do this stuff. Chiropractic was... Generously, you would say at the time, you know, alternative medicine, it didn't use sort of the scientific method. It was never, you know, put to blind clinical trials or anything like this. So, and chiropractors had a pretty good business going of polio patients. So you have people that have, have, yes, they have um, uh, spinal problems. They have mobility problems. They have partial paralysis. And so they're going in for spinal manipulations and things like this. So, unfortunately, I think it just sort of boils down to pr- both philosophical and probably a self-interest. The yeah. self-interest was, it's part of, polio, part of chiropractic's practice, and, but philosophical was, they were essentially opposing the germ theory of disease, the idea that microbes like viruses and bacteria were the root of disease, as opposed to misalignments mm-hmm. of the spine. And I thought, oh my God, okay, that's 1955. Okay, let's go 50 years later a significant portion of the chiropractic community still opposes vaccination, like routine child vaccinations. And when I wrote this article only a month or two ago in Scientific American, I heard from chiropractics on both sides of the aisle. Some who said, thank you. You you. (laughs) You nailed my colleagues to the T. Others who said, you know, what company are you shilling for in writing yeah, such an yeah. article? <laughs> and uh, for the record, I was paid zero, which is a typical <laughs> rate you get in academia. So, <laughs> but um, but this is what you hit, and and whether it's climate change or it's vaccination or back a long time ago, tobacco smoke and cancer. Um, when you have people who have some kind of interest mm-hmm. in resisting the science or in the science not being true Mm -hmm. you can see these rhetorical and then it becomes of course political and then it gets you know all Mm -hmm. sorts of things happen so um the the really important thing about denialism is to try to figure out how to sort of penetrate that fog Mm -hmm. and fundamentally you got to ask why would these people be opposing you know polio vaccination why Mm -hmm. would well you know why the tobacco companies would try to claim that tobacco smoke didn't cause cancer
0: I think, but, yeah. so the, the the thing about creationism, creationism makes sense because there's this deep philosophical, spiritual belief system that runs right against some facts. Yeah. The chiropractic or the climate change or the tobacco thing makes sense because there's entrenched business interests that run against the science. What yeah. about something like, what about uh, an upper middle-class mother with a child who has autism who becomes a militant anti-vaccination crusader? W- where does that come from?
1: Well, it comes from, from you know that experience, because usually, you know, the, the child's autism might be di- diagnosed right around the time of childhood vaccinations. I've met such parents myself. It's mm-hmm. hard for them to think that it was not caused by vaccination. And of course, it's you know a, a very for, for it varies of cor- for in terms of parents' experience, but you know, severe autism is a tremendous challenge for parents to, to deal with. So it's coming from a very understandable experience. Mm-hmm. And there are gonna be voices and sources out there that are gonna enforce that point, you're gonna support that point of view. This all started in 1998 with um, Andrew Wakefield's now discredited study in the Lancet that alleged that um, they saw a high incidence of autism and a small number of British kids um, uh, close to their MMR vaccination and and raised the question, oh my gosh, is autism being triggered uh, by vaccination? But within you know, three or four years, very large-scale studies in the United States, in Scandinavia, and in Europe could not replicate that. Much larger studies than the 12 kids that were in the Wakefield study. And so basically the incidence of autism is the same in kids who are vaccinated and kids who are not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fundamental. But nonetheless, 20 years later, it is very hard to get that thought out of people's minds and to say, you know, there must be something to this. I heard it. There must be something to it, unfortunately. So I think it's, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for parents who confront this and are confused by all those voices that are out there. So, because a lot of what denialism is, is sort of just raising doubt, Mm -hmm. right? It's, it's, you know, can you really trust the pharma companies? Can you really trust the medical establishment? You know, did you really feel like you were treated well when you, for example, your, maybe your kid was first diagnosed so there's, there's then a lot of momentum to the, I don't trust mm-hmm. this this group of people. And I have another set of sources that I trust. And those might be vocal, you know, anti-vaccination critics. Take RFK Jr. He's, there's an editorial either in the Washington Post and the New York Times today by his niece because RFK Jr. is out there against the COVID vaccine again. He's been, he's been an anti-vaccination person for 20 years or more. And even though the data is, you know, doesn't support this whatsoever, there are still folks that once they took an entrenched position, it's very hard for people to walk back from those, from those mm-hmm. positions. So a mother that experiences this or, a, you know, or parents of a newborn for maybe first child, they're like, well, what should we you know? My gosh, it's a big battery of vaccinations. ah, You know, and who likes to see needles go into their baby. So they're hesitant for understandable mm-hmm. reasons, but you know, that's where, pediatricians and other kind of public health information comes into play. So I think it's understandable why there's vaccine hesitancy. I think it's, I think, you know, strident anti-vaccination forces, um, you know, we, we, it's just harder un- to unpack where they all might be coming from. It might be coming from a personal experience. It might be coming from a, lo- a wider worldview sort of distrust of orthodox medicine or pharmaceutical companies. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it was concerning. Uh, we made a film about six years ago um, for Nova um, hmm. called Vaccines Calling the Shots. And we kind of ex- explored vaccine hesitancy for all these conventional vaccines Okay, so maybe as vaccination rates were dropping, we have more cases of whooping cough, some, some outbreaks of measles, et cetera. The, the, the human toll of that vaccine hesitancy seems pretty modest. Now with COVID-19, if a third of the country decides not to get vaccinated, and if that is a point of view that's you know replicated around the world, perhaps even worse in some parts of the world, Oh my gosh, we got a problem. We're not going to get rid of this thing. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get rid of this really nasty virus. And so the stakes now are sky high on mm-hmm. for vaccination.
0: So we're talking about vaccination. We've talked about evolution and given the very special circumstance the entire world is in right now with COVID, can you talk about viruses? So what what are viruses? How are they different yeah. from normal critters? And how can understanding the ways that they evolve and the ways they evolve differently from other creatures. What what can that tell us about how we should be handling the situation today? That's
1: a great question, Nick. And we're having this conversation right when there's, I think the reports this morning or last night, where's this, you know, new variant in Colorado? What does all this mean? Okay, so viruses are circulating everywhere. You and I've got them in us that viruses are little bits of genetic material that replicate inside host cells. So this is not these are not things that can Exist free living out on their own, like say for example, bacteria can, or um, you know, fungi can. Um, so they require a host cell to to replicate. And uh, animals harbor a lot of viruses. And if you think of all the diversity of animals on this planet, there are a lot of viruses across the across the globe. And every now and then, when there's contact between humans and wildlife. Um, is, a, is an opportunity for viruses to jump from uh, that wildlife into humans, an event often referred to as spillover. So
2: mm-hmm. the virus
1: is spilling over from a, from a natural reservoir into humans. Mm-hmm. That's what happened with COVID. That's what happened with HIV. That's what happens uh, essentially every year with flu. It, usually, it makes a cycle through um, usually um, birds.
0: Oh, really? I so, didn't know that about the flu.
1: Flu is recombining with viruses in in pigs and chickens and other uh, domesticated livestock to get,
0: okay. to get so the every different year, variants of flu. Every most, year. Most years it's, it's, it's a spillover event. It's
1: a sp- essentially it's a spillover event with flu. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, but getting back to something like COVID, HIV is another good example, but it's mm-hmm. a, a of animal viruses coming into humans and then, setting and then being transferred from human to human to human. So viruses there's they are small they are present in large numbers when a virus replicates in you or I it makes lots and lots and lots of copies of itself. So with lots and lots of copies of itself there's lots of chance for evolution because if you make You know, a billion copies of a virus, those billion copies are going to carry a mutation here and there. And those mutant variants may have different properties than the parental virus. That's why, for example, this variant is making news is because it looks like it might be a bit more transmissible than sort of the parent strain of coronavirus. And if it's more transmissible, what's that going to mean in terms of how it moves through the human population? Doesn't look to be more pathogenic. Does not look like it makes any more severe or less severe illness. It just may be, um, for example, binding, our, binding to our cells a little more readily. And so a little bit of virus gets a foothold mm-hmm. more easily um, than, the, than the parental virus. So why is this all relevant to us? You know, we, we live in a constantly evolving environment and we nearly 8 billion of us are making a lot of contact with wildlife that we didn't necessarily make before through bushmeat or through encroaching in forests, as we cut down the Amazon, as we invade the Congo, et cetera, et cetera. That's where Ebola is coming from. So Ebola is coming from what we think is a bat host and um, it's repeated cycles of infection spilling over to humans. So, you know, eh, if you thought that evolution was just some subject that was for, you know, dusty books and fossils and, you know, mm-hmm. old natural history museums. No, we li- we live in a world where all sorts of things are evolving. The microbes that we try to treat with antibiotics are evolving. The viruses that are out there in the world are evolving. And as we've now experienced, um, these evolutionary events can have profound consequences for Humanity. I can tell you that four years ago, we made a film on Spillover and talked about Zika and Ebola and some other things like Nipah and flu. I never imagined something like this. I never imagined that a virus could spread so far, be so dangerous, and essentially paralyze human activity across the globe for for a year or more now. Um, I'm also glad that molecular biology has evolved very quickly and that we could mm-hmm. develop countermeasures like these vaccines, you know, faster than any time in history. So um, yeah. So from a perspective point of view um, you know, it's an accident, random mutations happen in viruses uh, just as they happen in us. Some of those random mutations change those properties of the viruses, a chance encounter with a human and we're off to the races.
0: So you mentioned how fast we've been able to adapt to this virus. We, we've been able to basically go from zero to a hundred in terms of vaccine development in a very short amount of time compared to historical vaccine development. What is different about how this new generation of vaccines from Moderna and BioNTech are working and how does that impact our ability to try and stay, to keep pace with viral evolution?
1: Yeah. Great question. The way vaccines usually were made, say, let's say in the lowest tech era, mm-hmm. were often just a killed form of the virus. So you'd grow the virus in, in vats of tissue culture in a lab, you'd inactivate it chemically or with ultraviolet, or whatever it might be, and you inject that into people. So it's not able to infect them, but they're basically seeing the, the killed virus stimulates their immune system enough that they have protection in case they see the actual live virus. Um, those vaccines, uh, which we use for lots of things. So flu is an inactivated vaccine. um, um, You know, have generally worked okay, but for some viruses, they're very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, AIDS, we still don't have a vaccine because that virus mutates so quickly that basically it's, there's, there's no virus you could immunize people with that would protect everybody against AIDS. Um, So and usually because um, the way we conduct the clinical trials of these vaccines, um, there's a fair amount of sort of patient bureaucracy with this in, in that you know, you take one step and then it it's sent off to the FDA and it takes months to review and then you start the next step. What happened was, was all those things were compressed. So basically the federal government stepped in and started funding development of the vaccine or or the advanced stages of the vaccine before the other stages were sort of closed so that these manufacturers could be scaling up the production of the vaccine before they even knew whether it worked. Otherwise, it'd be huge financial risk. If you start scaling up a vaccine before you know it works and you find out it doesn't work well, you know, you Mm -hmm. may have lost a billion dollars and your shareholders are very unhappy. So basically, the federal government backstopped a lot of these vaccine developers so that they could be scaling faster so that they could jump into clinical trials faster. But there's also a technology shift. So mm-hmm. instead of killed viruses, Pfizer and Moderna uh, or BioNTech and Moderna use a technology that's never been used for large scale vaccination and that they are actually putting messenger RNA, which is um, a form of RNA that carries the genetic information for making one piece of the virus. They're putting that in little lipid droplets, injecting that into your arm, and your cells make a little bit of the virus that then primes your immune system. So these are mRNA vaccines had never been used at scale, and goodness, nobody could have predicted they would be as effective as the data turned out to be. Another thing about science, everybody's got to keep in mind, you don't know the results until you actually do the experiment. Mm-hmm. And for, for Moderna and BioNTech Pfizer, it, it just turned out um, really well. So there was a technological change. And the thing about M- mRNA vaccine was that as soon as those viruses were sequenced in China from patients, mm-hmm. we could, in the lab here, make those uh, those molecules very quickly and get them tested in animals and start right on the course of vaccination. Mm-hmm. So everything was, was sort of done in, in hyperdrive. Now, just today in, in the UK, a different vaccine made by Oxford AstraZeneca was approved. And this is, again... Uh, technologically something different, which is a little piece of the um, coronavirus, the same part that's being used in the mRNA vaccine, is in a vector, another virus, a harmless virus called uh, adenovirus aden- aden- 2. And this is a virus that can't replicate in our cells, but acts as sort of a shuttle to get that genetic material into our cells, making a little bit of the virus so that our immune system gets primed to it. So it's ready to go in case the real vi- we encounter the real virus. So both of those technologies are ways of delivering the sort of important part of the virus that is involved in infecting our cells. So this spike protein that's on mm-hmm. the outside of the coronavirus, that's the sort of the key that unlocks the portal on our cells that gets the virus into those into our cells. And if you block that key, it can't get in. So that's the rationale for, the, for, for vaccine design. But... Researchers were working on coronavirus vaccines for things like SARS and MERS. They had some years of experience with these technologies so that when this coronavirus came along, they said, hey, you know, let's see if we can make a vaccine this way. So it wasn't like the research did not exist, but really it was benchtop research for other coronaviruses that they, that they then said, well, let's go for it. Let's see if we can make an mRNA vaccine. Let's see if we can make an adenovirus-based vaccine. Um, another technology, which is just to make the spike protein as it is, that's the strategy being used by a company called Novavax. They're just mm-hmm. entering phase three trials now. Um, that's very similar in sort of design to something like the hepatitis B vaccine, which is pure viral protein. Um, so that's a little later than these other vaccines. Um, but this, this reflects, you know, the biologist tools for doing these things have changed a lot over the decades. And so we had more tools that worked a lot faster so that lots of folks jumped in. I mean, this was a worldwide effort and there's, you know, lots of vaccines under development. Um, but, but the, you know, because of the societal imperative, the financial backstopping of these companies so that they could start making tens and tens of millions of doses before they even knew the virus worked the vaccine worked that was really
2: important
0: mm-hmm. yeah. so i've heard the new mrna vaccines described as programmable what does that mean and what would it allow us to do if let's just say tomorrow there's a brand new Coronavirus strain, brand new yeah. mutation. The spike protein is now completely different, and the vaccines we have right now aren't as effective. How quickly could a new vaccine be developed?
1: Well, I mean, there. Are, I'm going to just. It's just going to be a speculation. I, I think it was 60 days at for the first one mm-hmm. that essentially the vaccine was formulated. So I think it's probably 60 days or less that we'd be able to spike. Uh, I shouldn't use the word spike. We so right now. The mRNA that's in there is for essentially the, the prototypical strain of, of coronavirus. If we thought now that coronavirus had evolved enough that we wanted to have some variant or combination of variants represented in that vaccine, we could add the mRNA for those variant proteins to that mixture. Same technology. Mm. So I think that adding a variant to the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine um, would be pretty darn straightforward. Now, I don't know, the regulatory authorities might want a new clinical trial to make sure that that was protective. Mm-hmm. Or it may be, again, just because of the imperative, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, realize most, most studies are, are done at a slower pace because the urgency and the societal impact is not that great. That, you know, maybe the regulatory authorities would, would allow use of that vaccine, essentially piggybacking on everything was established about first vaccine. Um, they'd still want to probably gather data in the field, but they might allow the vaccine to go forward without, um, all the steps, um, to the trial. Now that essentially the principle has been proven, Mm -hmm. you know, for the, uh, for the mRNA based vaccines. So we would have a response and the adenovirus is also programmable so that, um, we could quickly be expressing that variant. So I, I think it's, you know, I think it's 60 days that we'd probably be, um, Working on it, whether or not the regulatory authorities would allow that to go into people mm-hmm. in large numbers without some formal uh, testing, um, I can't speculate. But if if this was something, you know, imagine this: if two or three months from now we we found out there was a vaccine-resistant strain, a strain that we didn't think was was uh, was circ- starting to circulate that was not protected against by the vaccine, man, I I don't know. That's a really tough ethics call for for mm-hmm. regulators, which is you know the world is. Really suffering and would you take that chance? Um, well I hope we don't have to find out, man. I, I hope mm-hmm. we don't have to find out but you know we feel good that we can respond on this time scale A- at the same time. every month going forward, you can see what the what the death toll
2: mm-hmm. and what
1: the um, the, il- the the illness and the economic toll is going to be. so you know m- every month really matters right now.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing that the science is at a at a state where we can actually move this fast. It's it's absolutely amazing.
1: Yeah, it it, it is amazing. And the other well, there's one other part which is probably unseen by the public. So they're getting the news reports that say, you know, the phase one data that came out, I I almost can't remember, probably midsummer, that said, look, when you put these vaccines into people, their immune responses are similar to people who got the real virus, you know, got infected and, and went to the hospital. Um then the efficacy data surprised everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, no scientist is gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna make a 94-95% effective vaccine <laughs> out of the sheep. A lot of the vaccines we have aren't 94-95% effective at preventing infection. That's just the way the biology works. Uh, so you know, they hit a they hit a grand slam first time at bat. That's that's you know, that's 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 pretty remarkable. Um so I I think you know. The scientific community has a lot to be proud of, but the invisible part is that, you know, the sharing of data
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the sharing of studies, because a lot of stuff is going to uh, a lot of scientific studies of the coronavirus are going to these preprint servers before they go to journals. This is an innovation that happened in science publishing over the last few years to sort of speed up the otherwise somewhat, uh, Slow pace of formal scientific publishing. Now coronavirus hits, and people are just sharing their findings, you know, before peer review. There's some risk of that, but the upside of that is is that the information is getting into each other's hands much, much faster. Mm-hmm. And man, I've tried to, you know, penetrate the mass of that literature when I go ask a question and say, well, what do we know about patients' response, you know, three weeks in? And I find all these papers from all over the world, and it's just happening at at lightning speed. So the ability for scientists to share information is unprecedented. And the amount of sharing that's going on globally is unprecedented. Everyone's trying to learn as much about this virus and our responses to it and what works and what doesn't work as fast as possible and sharing that openly. That's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, Sure, we'd love to know more. We all, you know, we wish we knew in March what we know now, and I'm sure we're going to know things this coming March that we wish we knew today. Look, but, but nonetheless, that, that sort of the all, everything about the scientific enterprise is moving at a speed I've never seen in my lifetime on the coronavirus in particular.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So we've talked a lot about the role that chance plays in everything. <laughs> what So why don't you walk us through the new book and, and what it's about and, and what inspired you to write this book now?
1: Yeah, well, I wrote it pretty much pre-pandemic, but it was in editing when the pandemic came out. So I got to update that a little bit. So it's called A Series of Fortunate Events. Uh, and it's about chance and the making of the planet, life, and you. Why would I take up a book whose theme is about chance? And it's because I think it's an underappreciated force in, in the world. Um, And the book in particular looks at the sort of geological, um, cosmological, and biological accidents that make us us, and that sort of the astonishing series of things that had to happen for you and I to have this conversation, Um, for you and I to exist, for us to collectively to exist, for us individually to exist, And, um, and a bunch of stuff that's been only discovered in the last 50 years. Um, that scientists go, wow. And, it, and it's sort of some of the fun of the book, and I try to make it fun. Uh, I guess that's almost a pledge to anyone who decides to read it. Shortest book I've ever written. Um, trying to make it as digestible and as accessible. But you can almost think of it as a bunch of what-ifs. And the first what-if I start with is the asteroid impact 66 million years ago. A lot of people have heard about this asteroid hit the earth 66 million years ago, and you probably know, wiped out the dinosaurs. also triggered a mass extinction and wiped out three-quarters of all plant and animal life. Well, um, why is that a big what-if in terms of our point of view? Well, those dinosaurs and those large reptiles had dominated the earth for 150 million years. Mammals were a real sort of minor player on the stage at the time. They'd been around a long time, but they were generally small, um, not too significant part of, of um, the ecology of the planet. But after you you cleared the world of the dinosaurs, after that asteroid, mammals took off. And they got, in a very short period of time, much larger than it had ever been. And they became the largest animals um, in the oceans and and on land. And some of those mammals evolved into primates. And those primates eventually gave rise to us. So had that asteroid. Now let's add a little color to the asteroid. It's a six-mile-wide rock that hits the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago. Well, that rock may have been circulating in the solar system, I don't know, maybe 4 billion years. And at uh, one particular day 66 million years ago, it enters the atmosphere at 50,000 miles per hour and slams the Yucatan. If it enters, well, let me tell you a little more about the Yucatan. We now appreciate that the Yucatan had the kind of mixture of rocks, sulfur and carbonate containing rocks, that when you vaporized all that stuff and shot up in the atmosphere, it made a really toxic stew Hmm. as well as deflecting sunlight. So basically the world was in a blackout for probably 10 to 30 years. No sunlight or very little sunlight. So plants collapsed, everything that ate plants collapsed, everything that depended on things that ate those things that ate the plants collapsed. That's why you had a mass extinction. But only about 1 to 13% of the Earth's surface has the right combination of rocks
2: Hmm.
1: that when vaporized could cause that mass extinction. So had that asteroid entered maybe a half hour sooner, it lands in the Atlantic, probably no mass extinction. Half hour later, it lands in the Pacific, probably no mass extinction. So that's a pretty big what if. If, if that rock has no, does not hit the Earth, or if that rock hits somewhere else on the Earth, the Earth might still be a reptile-dominated world. Mammals are a minor player. Humans never come along. And I hope that's a little mind-blowing for people to contemplate that, that it, had we not been thrown this fastball from the cosmos, um, you know, we don't exist. Marvel comics don't exist. Everything <laughs> else that everybody depends upon does not exist. And uh, so the book has some of those stories, both sort of our collective existence. There's another big collision that involves the Indian subcontinent. Without it, we don't get the ice ages. Without that, we probably don't get large-brained humans. But even right down to you and I, um, so let's play a little. Let's play a little uh, pop quiz. You're you're good at math, so you'll get this. But anyway, how many how many genetically unique children could any human couple have?
0: Well, I cheated because I, I read the book. Um, <laughs> but I, if I try to go on my raw intuition, what do I think I would think the yeah. answer was? What do I think the average person might think? I don't know. You might guess dozens, maybe.
2: Yeah.
1: 23 chromosomes was coming from dad, 23 chromosomes come from mom. So maybe it's 23 or 46 or 92, but it's actually more than 70 trillion. <laughs> and so that means that no two of us will ever, unless there's an identical twin, no two fertilized human eggs will ever be identical ever. We are each unique so we can you know, cherish that, right? It says, but, but that's because of just the random assortment of chromosomes that, um, in fertilization and the sort of the sperm race we're just, you know, one out of a hundred million sperm that fertilizes the egg. And um, so each of us is essentially a biological accident, a happy accident, hopefully, Mm -hmm. um, but a, but a biological accident. So the book is all about sort of the role of chance in our existence. And in, as I said, in the way that the planet is, and it, I hope it sort of builds in people's minds, this, this understanding that, We live in a chance-driven world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you everything you look around, a chance deep within every organism, um, the process of mutation which which gives us all biological diversity on the planet is a chance process. That's how fundamental chance is to the biosphere.
0: One of my favorite stories in the book is in the beginning, in the introduction, I think, and you describe a scientist that most people probably have not heard of who's very famous among biologists. And this person said that the purpose of science is not to make new technology. So we just had a whole discussion about how amazing it is that science <laughs> creates so much amazing technology. But this guy said that's actually not the primary, not the essence of science. So who, who was that person and what was his answer to what science is really for?
1: Yeah. So this is French biologist Jacques Manot. Uh, Nobel laureate in 1965. He was a pioneer of molecular biology. But as a Frenchman steeped in his country's philosophical traditions, he was interested in what discoveries of biology had to offer some sort, of, sort of to the to the philosophical discussion of, of life and felt it was really underappreciated, particularly at the time he was living. Um, in the late 60s and early 70s, um, he, he felt that and it felt strongly enough that he wrote a book called Chance and Necessity to try to bring these discoveries of biology to a wider audience. Now, it's pertinent, at least in my telling of the story, that he had been friends with Albert Camus, writer-philosopher Albert Camus, who was also interested in sort of, um, you know, is there a purpose in life? Why are we here? And when they met and became friends, he now had, you know, one of the great biolog- living biologists of his time as kind of a personal consultant on All Matters, all matters Biological. But what Minot came to the conclusion of, and this came directly from understanding molecular biology, that this process of mutation is random and therefore the source of all diversity in the biosphere, all variation, all complexity, all beauty, is chance. And he saw the philosophical power of that, which basically it vaporizes all notions of design and intent in the world. Which is really, you know, 2,000 plus years of Judeo-Christian thinking. So, but remember, these are facts from biology. So, the philosophers were, you know, were riled up about Minot because he was sort of infringing on their territory, but he was bringing new information and saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, we biologists say, look, you know, biology is is driven by a by a chance-based process." You know what does that mean? What should that mean to the world? So it prompted me to write this book, Chance and Necessity, and and it was a book I read as a teenager, and um, but I felt that that still chance was not as widely appreciated or as deeply appreciated as it should be. And it's uh, Minot's book was 50 years ago, and he passed away only a few years after he wrote it. And I thought, okay, well maybe it's time to revisit that with new discoveries. Minot didn't know about the asteroid impact. He didn't know about the plate tectonics that had reshaped the world. Um, He didn't know uh, necessarily the connection between mutation and traits like we know today. He didn't know about, for example, the origin of cancer. So I thought um, let's, let's, let's update our thinking about chance with discoveries from the last 50 years. And um, uh, I happen have spent a lot of time in, in, in sort of Minot's trail. So I do this, I do this uh, humbly, uh, offering this, this little update on our, our view of chance.
0: So I love the book by the way. Um, so it's highly recommended by me. Thanks, I thanks. think, you know, you've written a number of books now, so you're a bestselling author. You're obviously a successful scientist. I want to get into the filmmaking stuff in a little bit, but I want to talk about actually maybe the very beginning for you. So even before you got into science, and before you were letting your curiosity drive where you were going once you were in the formal scientific world, what were you what were you interested in as a kid? what were you studying in college? Was it always science oriented and and what was that like early on?
1: Okay well I think I know my origin story you never know you know is it if it's accurate but I, I'm pretty sure this is accurate what I can start with and it's important I gave you a place right I grew up in Toledo, Ohio on the a city perched on the edge of Lake Erie, a lake that I never swam in or ate anything out of my whole childhood because it was notoriously polluted. It is not a hotspot of biodiversity. So as a little kid, and I grew up in a, on a city block which had nine houses on each side, You know, my whole neighborhood, I went on that block after block after block. So squirrels and pigeons were, you know, and an occasional robin, was the only wildlife in my backyard. But on the edges of the city, if I got out into the woods, that's where I found frogs and salamanders and snakes. And that is what got my juices flowing. You'd flip over a log. You didn't know what was there. Oh, my gosh, look at that. Look at that. That's so cool. Look at that creature. Oh, my gosh. And they were just, to me, fascinating. And coupled with, um, at the time, there was a show on TV called uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom hosted by Marlon Perkins, who was the curator of the uh, St. Louis Zoo. And they went around the world to, you know, fascinating places and, you know, and looked at wildlife. Um, and I just thought that was captivating. I, I, I know how much, of, you know, Africa, the Amazon, the whole world was an amazing place. Um, but I was in this rather, rather domesticated place of Northwest Ohio, and um so it was log flipping and i know this experience is of a lot of other biologists that we 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 discover in each other that you know if you like butterflies as a kid or you like fossil hunting as a kid or you like or maybe you've lived on a farm and you liked livestock and animals that's roots of a lot of biologists that i know and for me it was reptiles and i just thought they were fascinating creatures and i thought okay i'll i'll study biology in college now, did I have any idea where that was going to go? Mm-hmm. Oh, hell no. Um, you know, what do you know? I mean, you've got to think back to yourself. What did, what did, you, know, what did you know at the beginning of where you might go? Um, but what happened was I got taken into a lab early. Sound familiar? And I got to see up close how science was done and then got invited to do some of that science. And I loved the lab work. I loved the ability to design an experiment and then see what would happen. And um, so I became then an indoor biologist. So even though I had this great love of, you know, of wildlife in particular, um, you know, I became a, an, an indoor experimental, you know, kind of molecular biologist type. Because I loved answers at that level. I still do. I, lo- I love getting down to the absolute, you know, fundamental mechanism of something if, if you can. But as a kid, um, it was just, it was the thrill and I, I, I think about this a lot, Nick. Um, it was the thrill. When you, when you flip over a log, most of the time there's nothing under there or it's just worms and millipedes, right? Mm-hmm. But when you find a Jefferson salamander with this shiny black body with little blue dots on it, I mean, that's like finding the hope diamond, <laughs> right? It's a huge visceral thrill when, you know, when you're just out you know driving along a road you, you say, oh my god there's a snake in the road you know and you hop out and and check out this you know beautifully colored milk snake or something like that that's what made my heart race and i just i didn't have a clear idea what i could do with it but i decided i wanted to study life and biology as an undergrad and then i had enough people take me under their wing to sort of say oh this is this is how you become a biology student this is how you then become sort of an apprentice biologist and you know this is what we do and i thought okay, okay this is uh, i'm going to roll with this
0: hmm. yeah. i mean a common thread here is that you've you've always seemed to be curiosity driven first and we've talked yeah. a lot about the role of chance versus planning in in your trajectory so what what advice would you give to someone generally about how they should look at seizing chance opportunities that arise throughout life
1: Heavy, I tell you, I, I've been in this position a few times. Nick, rock give advice, and then I get an email later. It says, "Yeah, I'm giving up engineering for art," and I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> shh, oh, <laughs> you know, just don't tell your parents where you heard that." Um, look, full disclosure: uh, my wife Jamie and I were parents of four kids. You know, that's that's probably the closest. You know, um, you know, th- those are those are the people closest to me in life, and and you know, what advice do you give a? A child, and I, it's it's actually the advice I got from my parents, and and so it's advice I gave my kids, which is my parents just said, you know, find something you love. I was the weirdo in my family. Uh, none of no scientists in my family. Uh, a lot of musicians, um, but you know, I went out in the backyard and looked at stuff, and they thought, well, he's happy, let him do it. And my mom let me keep snakes in my my room and let me keep night crawlers in the family refrigerator and even though she was grossed out by them she she let me do that so we said the same thing to our kids and it turns out they all went into the arts <laughs> <laughs> so i i have to believe that and i truly believe for you know for happiness in life you have to pursue those things that um arouse your passions Um, you you just, you just have to, It, it doesn't mean you don't get to do it all the time, all day long. You know, most all the artists I know, including my kids, there's some balance where there might be a day job that helps pay the bills while they, while they, uh, you know, work on a new song. Um, but nonetheless, they, they have to be doing these creative endeavors, I think, to, to be happy and to, to be fulfilled. And so you're asking, you know, what advice do I want to throw out there to, to people? I think if you can find something that you find fulfilling and can figure out some way to make that, make a living at it, you know, you win. You know, I mean, I think if you can, I, I remember asking my youngest this, I said, you know, how much of your day, this is post-college, I said, how much is a musician? How much of your day do you get to spend immersed in music one way or another? And he said, well, more than half. And I said, man, I think you're beating the averages. You know, I mean, most jobs, um, you know, most endeavors, no matter what you find yourself doing, there's a certain amount of, you know, administrative work or, you know, time spent that you don't really relish. It just comes with the territory. But if you can spend a fair amount of your time doing things that keeps your juices flowing, keeps your passion up keeps you you know motivated whether that's working for a cause or pursuing the arts or pursuing science um you know um you know whatever whatever it might be i i think that's what we're trying to find for for ourselves you know hopefully in relatively the first half of life you know
2: Mm -hmm. first
1: 25 or 30 years if you can find it then i think you're fortunate and if you and if you can make a living at it then Then you're doubly fortunate. (laughs) It doesn't, they don't, as you know, they don't go hand in
0: hand. Well, you've, you've had a really interesting way of figuring out how to pursue your interest as a scientist, but then also tell those stories in book form, but also in the form of films. So talk a little bit about what you're doing for HHMI. What is HHMI and what is your role there and how does it tie to filmmaking and how did, how did that happen? (laughs)
1: Yeah, everybody kind of hold on for this talk. Um all right, so I'm I'm head of science education at HHMI. HHMI is um the largest life science philanthropy in the United States, supports both basic research and science education. I run their science education programs I have for the last 10 years. I was motivated to do that a lot because I I think it, the teaching of science is really important. And that I, I thought there was some way I could contribute to both um the content that's available to teachers um, and to even the training that's available to teachers. And we're, in, we're involved in both. But I'm also interested in the public communication of science. And so one of the things I did when I got here with my trustee's blessing um, was to start a documentary film unit. That came from experience of being in lots a fair amount of films before that and meeting a fair number of filmmakers and feeling that, One thing, that a model that had not really been explored is to have scientists sort of right up there in the cockpit with filmmakers telling these stories. Generally, we were subjects that were visited by filmmakers. They did their shooting. They went back and, you know, edited these films. And then, you know, we'd see them later when they were broadcast. And it seemed like a missed opportunity. In fact, myself, and a lot of my colleagues were not necessarily very happy with the product, nor were the filmmakers. And I thought, I just kept asking my, you know, these filmmakers I came to know, you know, what was stopping you from doing your best work? And, you know, was there a different model that we could pursue? And so as a science organization, we started this documentary film studio and brought in people from the industry. So my team is very seasoned filmmakers, seasoned industry people, some journalist folks. And um, what we basically do is tell stories about science and scientists uh, on film. Now some of those things we do for the classroom I won't, I won't we don't need necessarily talk about that today, but the things that your audience can see are you know IMAX films for you know science museums, broadcast films that you'll see on you know PBS or Netflix or Smithsonian Channel, um, things like that and, and different styles of films, more theatrical films that are a little more emotional and inspirational, as well as sort of more informational films about things like vaccination or spillover uh, diseases and, and things like that. But the thing about film is it's the most immersive medium we have. It travels the globe very well. And a film can be seen by very, very large audiences. Um, it, it Also, film can allow you to do things. It's very hard to do in other media. It can help you imagine the invisible or things mm-hmm. that are sort of beyond the human scale of experience, whether it's the cosmos or, you know, life inside a cell. Um it can let you go back in time, you know, recreate things with actors and all that. So, um, you know, and it's, it's a popular form of entertainment. So science has a lot of stories to tell, and we just have to be good enough at telling them that people want to hear these stories as much as they want to, you know, hear stories from other fields of, of human endeavor. So I don't know if that gives you that's that in a nutshell, because anything longer than that would be a long time. Cause that's a lot of evolutionary steps to go from,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, you know, Write, starting to write books to working with actually some of the best filmmakers, documentary filmmakers in the world um, to tell some of these, these uh, science stories. So, and, I, and look, I, I, the other thing I just want to underscore is the, the craft side of that. Um, these storytellers, their ability to tell a story visually, um, I'm astounded at times, moved. Um, I remember there's a, the, the, one of my books, Serengeti Rules, was adapted to film. And filmmakers decided that they wanted to sort of tell the origin stories of a few of the ecologists that are in the film. And I was visiting in London. Uh, the producer was in London. And I, we went to a screening room around the corner in a London theater just to see some early work, some early cuts. And I watched it and I said, oh, my God, every one of these scientists is going to have a tear going down their, their eye because they captured what you and I have been talking a lot in this past hour—they captured that passion, they captured that curiosity, they captured why would somebody go out in the world for 50 years into a remote part of the planet, and 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 just devote their lives to asking a question and understanding how nature worked—and they they caught it and uh, and they conveyed it—and that's um, you know that's a talent that is. Scarce in general, but when when paired up with I think with some scientific aptitude, it 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 hopefully it's a it's a potent mix. Film won an Emmy by the way for best nature documentary, so I'll just <laughs> you know give 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 credit where credits due.
0: And what was the name of that one again?
1: The Serengeti Rules.
0: Serengeti S- Rules.
1: Screen- screening on PBS right now on PBS's Nature. It's uh, screening for free, so if you want to check it out, um, go ahead. But it's uh, that's to me is a good example of combining the art. Um, the visual art and storytelling with a substantive and important uh, scientific story. Another one I'd throw out there, which is also screening uh, streaming for free, is called "The Farthest." It's the story of the Voyager missions um, to the to the outer solar system, launched in 1977. Also won an Emmy for best doc, and um, it's a hell of a story. And and again, great great filmmaking with a great story. Um, it's it's you know these are these are these are these are they're they're kind of the equivalent of the Eureka moments in the lab. Sometimes things come together, and what happens is better than you could have imagined hmm.
0: one one of the last things I want to ask you about is you know we've talked a lot about chance and opportunity and creativity and spontaneity in many ways, but at this point, you've written several books. Let's just talk about the book writing process. yeah, you must have some kind of creative process, so your last book, you know you're going to write it. You're in the middle of it. You know you've got to get X chapters out. Paint us a picture of what what does it look like when you've got your sleeves rolled up and you're doing the work.
1: Yeah. So when when I when I know I'm going for it. So that was a book that probably incubated in some embryonic form for five or six years before mm-hmm. I tackled it. I thought there was something there that I wanted to do, but I couldn't couldn't quite see enough of it to to do it. But once I Saw enough of it and kind of knew stylistically some things I wanted to do. Uh, there's a little lightheartedness in the book, you may have noticed. Uh, you know me well enough to know that I would be throwing off one-liners from time to time, but I haven't necessarily done that a lot in books. Um, so once I got in sort of, I think, the right headspace for telling the story the way I wanted to, uh, I'm on my back patio on a summer morning at 6.30 in the morning. I, I wake up um, while everything's fresh. Mm-hmm. Um get to a quiet place. And if I can write for two or three hours with no clock, with no timer ticking. So like the worst thing for me is like, I got to be somewhere at eight 30. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have two hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, Cause what if it's not flowing? Then you're like, Oh no, I got one hour. Oh, now the morning shot. So I need, you need enough buffered time there that if it's flowing, you can just stick go all it. the way. You can stick with it and get, get it all out until you're just like, okay, I'm out. You know, <laughs> now I can go off and go to the day job. Um, but it's that kind of process day after day. And I, I need to keep my momentum up. And that was, I can't take many days off from writing. It feels like the rock slides back downhill on me
2: mm-hmm. that,
1: that I'm right there. And then you hit, you, you hit like a, a knot or something. You're like, ah, oh, God, where am I going to go with this this way? Am I going to go that way? Uh. And you also have to be patient enough that you will go somewhere, you know, with a story and it's not working and you have to tear it up and, and back up and, and go another way and not say, oh, that's two days lost. You just that's just part of the game. But um, I think it, that momentum is really important. That headspace that you're in re- for me is really important. And and maintaining that. Um, it, it's almost it's not a trance. <laughs> it's like a very soft trance. It, it, you, you start to become unaware of the passage of time. You're deep in the story. You're kind of in your storytelling voice, even, mm-hmm. and you can feel that you're not getting interrupted. You're not answering the phone. You're not looking at email or anything else like that. You're just in your storytelling voice, and you're just trying to tell the story, tell the story as engagingly and as clearly as you can. And um, and and to do a book length project, boy, you got to keep that up, you know, for months and months and months. Hmm. You, I don't know if that gives you. I don't know if that gives you a little glimpse. Yeah, for, no, for another great. book, for another book, that was three years, and that yeah, yeah. that 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 couldn't be. I couldn't do it day after day for three years. This book was manageable in probably about a year's time.
0: Okay. Yeah. You you mentioned your lightheartedness, and that's something I've always appreciated about you. I there was something I read in the last book that I didn't expect, except once I read it, it made perfect sense. You mentioned stand-up comedians, and you talked about this weird or maybe not weird, similarity that stand-up comedians and scientists have. So what? what is that?
1: Okay, so I was realizing, so I love stand-up comedy for whatever reason. I love a good laugh. And uh, especially with, I have two boys living in LA, and you go to LA and all the comedy clubs have just top-line acts. And I live in DC now, and I can, in pre-COVID, could go to lots of comedy. So I go to a lot of stand-up comedy and developed you know, as fans of all sorts of people. And I realized Louis Black, Sarah Silverman, Bill Maher, Ricky Gervais, Bill Burr, on you go. They deal with, for example, religion or sort of the accidental nature of life in their acts. And I thought, first of all, maybe it's why I like them. But second of all, it's kind of brave because it's not an area that people are comfortable with. They're pretty explicit about saying, you know, hey, this is all there is. Uh, there's nobody in charge. Um, and and, and I, I thought, well, why is this? Why did it? Eric Idle's another? And I, so I reached out to some folks, including Eric Idle of Monty Python, who answered. <laughs> you know, I had a bunch of questions. I thought I get to communicate with my, one of my all-time comedy idols. And I just wanted to get at this of why is it in their act and why, if I think of all people in all sorts of walks of life, it seemed like comedians, there were a disproportionate number of comedians that saw the world as chance-driven, as, as, you know, as accident-predominating. Seth MacFarlane's another, and there's a story in the book about Seth, who was, by a hair's breadth, missed the plane on 9-11. And, um, and Eric came back to me and said, it's, it's about truth-telling. Hmm. Eric Idle and I thought, "Holy smoke! How can I get to the age I am and not understand?" Sort of, and then I, I re- I'm reading these interviews with Gervais and Bill Maher, and, and truth telling just keeps coming up left, right, and center. Now that I, now that I'm alert to it, I'm like, "Yes, they see themselves as truth tellers," and of course, well, that's what we scientists see ourselves as. So we're we're trying to find out the world as it is, not some construct of a way we wish it was. But how does it work? What is does it is? What does that mean? Okay. We're here by accident. Okay. There's nobody looking out for us. There's no preset, you know, purpose or whatever it might be. And I'm finding all these comedians who think that way and, and who reflect that in their work. And so that, that discovery of comedians and scientists having truth telling as a, as their, their common, um, modus, I, uh, I just thought it was fun to explore that. Uh, first it was fun to, to me to sort of quote discover it or discover it for myself anyway, and then to explore that. So the last chapter in the book is this conversation about chance, which is um, it, it's a synthesis of thoughts from dead people like Kurt Vonnegut and Albert Camus and Jacques Manon, um, comedians who took the time who had time to answer me like Eric Idle, other interviews from folks like Ricky Gervais and um because when you get into this area talking about chance, inevitably people ask, well, you know, if, if it's all chance, what purpose is there in life? What meaning is there in life? And I knew, well, I thought that readers would want me to go down that road. So I did in the last chapter, but I did it with this these assembled guests that I wanted to have a conversation with, which was Camus, who takes the deep philosophical approach, Vonnegut, who takes kind of the satirical literary approach, um, you know, uh, Gervais and, and, uh, and Idol who take other approaches. And, and, um, and hopefully that conversation was interesting. I, I had fun stitching it together.
0: Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun to read for sure. So last few minutes here, why don't we just close out one more time? What's the latest book? What's the latest film that's out there? And where can people go to learn more about you and, and what you're doing?
1: Oh, goodness. Okay, so the latest book is A Series of Fortunate Events, um, chance in the Making of the Planet, Life, and You. And I've given you that information, including there's a two-minute animated trailer for the book, which I think is a good way for people to sample it and see if it, if it, if it tickles their sensibilities, then hopefully the book is worth it. Films we mentioned, I think the, the Serengeti Rules and The Farthest would be two sort of e- exemplary films that have come from our studio. Right now, there's also a film on demand um, if you look it up, it's called Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. Hmm. It's a documentary about the life of Oliver Sacks. Very powerful, um, directed by Rick Burns. So that's a, one of our current releases that's out there. Got the release, the theatrical release was affected by COVID, but uh, it's being released in a mechanism that helps support theaters at the same time, making it available um, on demand. And more stuff, gosh, if you if you really want to find anything more about me, there is a, my website is com, and there'll be a little it's there about past books and ongoing film activities and, and, and things like that.
0: Well, Sean, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You've been for like 15 years now, you've been my scientific role model. You've also been my facial hair role model. (laughs) And I I think you're, you know, your books are a lot of fun to read. They're super interesting. And I think people are going to really enjoy looking you up.
1: Well, thanks, Nick. I'm glad I at least had the judgment when this kid came into my office um, and stunned me by telling me he had read Endless Forms, Most Beautiful, and wanted a slot in the lab, um, that four years later, uh, you proved, you know, an immensely talented, hardworking, incredibly thoughtful uh, scientist, did a great piece of work as an undergrad, which is very rare as it is, great and influential piece of work as an undergrad. So, um,
2: you know, let's keep having these conversations. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Nick.